NASA got the world's attention about a decade ago when they published their New Star X-ray telescope's image of an exploding star. Uh, I love that our screens are so vivid you can actually see it. Um, from the center source of light there, you can see the dust of star debris shoot out like fingers. And especially since it was dubbed the hand of God, it made people in 2014 gawk in awe at the beauty that we could never see with the naked eye, but now because of x-ray telescopes, we can see these vivid pictures of God's creation light years from us. If you were to Google the phrase, the hand of God, for just a few seconds this afternoon, you'd be inundated as I was with all kinds of natural phenomena like cloud formations that people have snapped pictures of claiming to have seen the very hand of God. I, I caught just a handful as I was finishing up yesterday. I'm sure that there are millions of heavily edited photos there, but these are photos copied from news sources across the world. That doesn't mean that they still aren't edited. We know that about news, but it just adds a little bit of layer of legitimacy. The two on the left of the screens are, they're pretty astounding anomalies, much like when uh, we were kids, you know, laying on the trampoline, looking up, at the sky, uh, looking up at the sky, seeing the clouds, all the different formations and shapes there. But these actually, the two on the left, they actually look like hands, don't they? The large one on the right, however, uh, I hope you see it, and one of the most Australian headlines that I've ever seen, the story boasted this in big block lettering, the hand of God, people reckon they can see God's massive hands in the sky during a storm. In reality, it's not a cloud formation at all. It's pretty obvious that it's the reflection of a man's hands in his windshield as he snaps a photo with his phone of the quick oncoming storm. So no hand of God there, just an Android phone. Probably the, the most concerning aspect of the few minutes that I spent scrolling through some of these images online was the number of religious organizations which claimed validity because one of these clouds appeared over their event. I saw one clip of a charlatan holding an outdoor event in which a hand-like cloud appeared above the tent, and the leader then commanded people to send him money Give to his ministry because he wielded the power of God. Uh, no, thank you. Uh, makes me want to kind of scoot over from how close I am to you, if that's were the case. I hope you're not taken in so easily by tricks and edits and nonsensical power moves like that. The biblical fact is that God is spirit. John chapter 4, 24 states, and he has no hand. He doesn't have eyes, or nostrils, or mouth, or body. The theological term is incorporeal. God is completely and totally other, not having a physical body which contains him. If you hear any of that, and think, however, that God is somehow less than we humans, you're hearing me wrong. Psalm 94 depicts a fool who says, God will not see me in my wrongdoing because God has no eyes. He's got his theology right, but he's got his practice down wrong. The psalmist then sarcastically attacks him in verse 9 of Psalm 94 when he says, He who planted the ear, shall he not hear? He who formed the eye, shall he not see? 
When we say that God has no body, that he has no hands or nostrils or eyes, that doesn't mean that God doesn't see. No, he sees more acutely than our human ocular synapses can ever relay sight to us. You think you can see with your eyes. You don't know anything. God can truly see. Even without hands, he feels more deeply than any mere mortal. In fact, numerous times, Scripture teaches us that the Lord smells the sacrifice of his people and it appeases or satisfies him, like Genesis 8.21. In his most recent book, Dr. Robert Piccarelli clearly relays it this way. I loved his statement. If there's anything different between his seeing and ours, perhaps it's that he sees far better than we. His eyesight is perfect. The reach of his hand to save is unlimited. His ears pick up our softest whispers even when they are mere thoughts. And we are in awe of him for that. Should I say to a grieving widow, for example, that God has no arms to comfort her, I might as well be guilty of blasphemy. Isn't that beautiful? He goes on to say later, we are, after all, in his image, not he in ours. That's why we can so easily say that God has no ears, but he hears. He has no eyes, but he sees. Okay, cool story, Corey. What does that have to do with anything this morning? Thanks for the, theolo- for the theology class on a Sunday morning. Um, what, what's the purpose of that? It's important to note all of this this morning because as we turn to the seventh and eighth chapter of the book of Ezra, we're going to be struck six different times with the hand of God in Ezra's life. If Ezra uses this human language so freely about God, and he is the most learned scribe of his generation, then it would be good for us to have a strong grasp of what it means to have the hand of God on our lives. The phrase pops up dozens of times throughout Scripture in in one iteration or another, sometimes the hand of God, sometimes the hand of our Lord. We speak it so quickly in our own personal prayers you know, when we ask God to work in the lives of his people, we'll, we'll pray things like, God, touch brother so-and-so. Embrace our dear sister in her despair. Well, what is it that we mean when we say something like that? What does Ezra mean when he says that the hand of God was upon him six different times in just two short chapters? As plainly and as simply as I can outline it, I believe that this phrase, the hand of God was upon me, it means two things. That God calls and God keeps. He calls and He keeps. We'll tease that out throughout the time this morning. The book of Ezra details the exodus of 50,000 Israelites from leaving Babylonian or Persian captivity back to their homeland of Judah, or specifically Jerusalem. Now, early in the book, we were introduced to men like Zerubbabel and Jeshua, and they had the first wave of returnees. They built the altar, and they reinstate worship back in Jerusalem. They obey God, and they lay the foundation of the temple. But then, remember, they stop short. They're intimidated by the enemies that are surrounding them to continue building the temple for decades. 
Their enemies had started such an effective letter-writing campaign back to Persian authorities that the king of the time ordered them to stop building. So they obeyed man rather than God. But then prophets come along. They come in hard against them. Men like Haggai and and Zechariah, they preach to them, they edify them, they build them up so that they would then build up the temple of God. They urge them to obey God's will over the decree of any other. And so effective was their preaching that the people once again rose up and they built in spite of all the military and political pressures surrounding them. Well, the temple was completed in two decades, but there's still a lot of work to be done. So much time has passed and the people of God are in dire need of someone who can lead them in worship of the one true God, Jehovah, that they don't know what to do. Someone needs to come and help them with the law, understand what it means to sacrifice, to to give an offering, to praise God. How do we do that? Someone needs to come and do this. Ezra is that man. When he's introduced to us in Ezra chapter 7, verse 11, he's described to us as a priest, or the priest, the scribe, expert in words of the commandments of the Lord and of his statutes to Israel. We talked at great length about this last week. Ezra was literally born for this position. He was the guy, undoubtedly the guy for this job. But one thing that I failed to mention concerning his office as detailed in verse 11, is that most scholars believe that Ezra also held an office in the Persian court. When he's described as a scribe in verse 11 of chapter 7, it seems to suggest that he holds a position similar to the secretary of the Jews to Artaxerxes, king of Persia. Something really spectacular like that. Ezra is most likely not some average guy off the street, but a faithful servant to Artaxerxes. Ezra hears about the plight of his people, the Jews, and he longs to be involved in what God is doing in the temple in Jerusalem. We don't have all the details as to how it all went down, but somehow Ezra finds himself in an audience with Artaxerxes, very similar to Esther. We talked about that last week as well where he has to ask the king to grant him leave and safe passage from Persia to Jerusalem. Miraculously, Artaxerxes grants him the request. Why? Was it because of Ezra's political savvy? His adept powers of negotiation? Had he read the art of the deal? His charismatic personality? The Lord could have used any and all of those characteristics if Ezra had them, but Ezra writes it much more plain than that, and humbler, by the way. In Ezra chapter 7, verse 6, this Ezra came up from Babylon, and he was skilled. He was a skilled scribe in the law of Moses, which the Lord God of Israel had given. The king granted him all his request according to the hand of the Lord his God upon him. Every time you hear Ezra invoke the hand of God on him, he's not saying, I'm someone special. He is deferring to the Lord. Essentially, in this autobiography, he's saying, it wasn't me. It was the Lord. Obviously. 
in me and through me. I wish we had details like we do of Esther's plea to save the Jews as to this interaction between Ezra and Artaxerxes. I wish we had some insight into what it looked like for Ezra, just a, a mere cog in the Persian government, to stand in front of Artaxerxes, who calls himself the king of kings, by the way, with all of his court, with all of his soldiers, with all of his generals right there, and Ezra makes a request. Let me leave here and go to Jerusalem and King Artaxerxes foot the bill for me to do this. We hardly have any of those details anywhere, just that Artaxerxes granted his request. In fact, Artaxerxes says a whole lot more than that. He doesn't just give him time off with pay. In chapter 7, verses 12 through 26, we have this letter recorded from Artaxerxes in the original Aramaic. Thankfully, it's been translated for us. We don't have time to read it in its entirety, but the king agrees to give Ezra a lot. (laughs) A ton of silver and gold. There'll be more on that later. But the whole point is, Ezra, you take this money, you take this gold and silver, and you take it to the temple in Jerusalem, and you use it to beautify the temple of God. Ezra is essentially given a blank check for his travel and livelihood, even whenever he gets to Jerusalem. Look at verse 27 of Ezra chapter 7. Ezra writes, Blessed be the Lord God of our fathers who has put such a thing as this in the king's heart to beautify the house of the Lord which is in Jerusalem. And he has extended mercy to me before the king and his counselors and before all the king's mighty princes. So I was encouraged as the hand of the Lord my God was upon me. And I gathered leading men of Israel to go up with me. This doesn't want to be, Ezra doesn't want to be the only one going up. He wants to gather people with him. So he rustles up a posse. He sends out the word. He staples up posters on all the telephone poles, I guess. Whoever would like to go with him to Jerusalem, now's the time. Scores and scores of Jews had answered the call under Zerubbabel, around 50,000 earlier. How many would respond to Ezra's cry? Let's go back to Jerusalem. How many do you think? About 1,700. If Ezra was disappointed at that number, it doesn't show anywhere in the text. If he were playing the comparison game with the church down the road, Zerubbabel did all that, look at what I'm doing, it's nothing, he would have been disheartened, but he's not. But that doesn't mean that everything's okay either. Jump a chapter over. Ezra chapter 8, verse 15 Apparently, part of the flyer that Ezra had stapled up to and told everyone interested to meet, uh, to go to Jerusalem, he said, meet me at the river that flows out of Ahava. There, Ezra camps out and he waits for three days. And it seems as though the 1,700 Jews trickle in during those three days. And the caravan is just about to pull out when Ezra decides to do a head count to record all who would be going with him. This census revealed something troubling to Ezra, though. And it's not the number. He's thankful for who and what he has. 
Ezra 8.15 tells us, I gathered them by the river that flows to Ahava, and we camped there three days, and I looked among the people and the priests and found none of the sons of Levi there. Not one. Among all that had gathered at the river, not one Levite had decided to leave Persia and go to Jerusalem. Now, why is that a big deal? To understand that, you have to understand who the Levites were. Their whole goal in going back to Jerusalem is to beautify the temple of God, remember? Well, the Levites were the tribe of Israel who their sole responsibility was to the spiritual life of the nation. In this tribe, we have priests, those who were of the sons of Aaron. But all other families in Levi, they were to be completely consecrated to the work of the tabernacle or the temple. So if I could say it this way, try to stay with me, I guess. I know I'm teaching a lot, but we'll get to some preaching in just a moment. All the priests were of the tribe of Levi, but not all Levites were priests. Does that make sense? Unless you were of the the lineage of Aaron, who was in Levi, you weren't a priest. So all priests were of the tribe of Levi, but not all Levites were priests. Ezra looks around and he sees priests. He's one of them, by the way. But there are no Levites. There are no temple workers. These Levites, they were involved, or they were supposed to be involved, in helping the priests make the sacrifices. They were in charge of the music for worship. They were responsible for the upkeep of the temple and its furniture. They worked among the people, helping them, meeting their felt needs, dispersing food and money to those in poverty. They taught and they led in the spiritual education of the nation, especially among the children. Essentially, these Levites were men who were involved in full-time vocational ministry, as one preacher put it. It was a great blessing to being a Levite. You were paid and fed through the offerings and sacrifices of God's people. You had a steady workflow. There was job security in it. But there was also a pretty major drawback. You didn't own any land in Israel. You were essentially assigned to quarters around the temple. You had the honor of being involved in the work of God on on a day-to-day level of the worship of Jehovah, but you could never really strike out on your own. I think this is probably why Ezra saw no Levites respond to the call for the return to Jerusalem. In Babylon, in Persia, the Levites could own land. For the first time in generations, they actually had something tangible to pass down to their descendants. In fact, it seems as though they built up whole communities of Levites in Persia who relished in the fact that they weren't beholding to anybody. No more living in quarters around the tabernacle or around a temple. We can have our own land. So when Ezra's invitation went out across the land for anyone and everyone to return to the city of God and build for and serve the Lord as they were commanded, the Levites were the most skeptical of the bunch. Everyone sacrificed in order to leave Persia and get back to Jerusalem. But the Levites, their sacrifice, they sacrificed their freedom in many ways. I get the issue, maybe more than most, I don't want to make a direct one-to-one comparison with contemporary pastors to ancient Levites, but there are more similarities than not. Let me hit you with 
A couple of stats that I hope will cause you to pray for more laborers in local churches. The average age of pastors in the United States is 57. It jumped seven years in just three years' time. Don't ask me how that's possible. One in four pastors in America plan to retire in the next six years. That is certainly not a knock on anyone's age. Praise God for mature men of God who faithfully serve the Lord. But it does indicate that our nation is and will be plunged further into a pastoral shortage crisis. In just about a decade, we are looking at a ton of churches in America having to shut down because they have no pastor. In fact, in an article published two years ago, Dr. Adam Moody cited 124 churches in our own small free will Baptist movement, 124 pastors which need, or churches which need pastors right now. I know for a fact, although I don't have the exact number, that that, ha- that number has ballooned in the last two years. That is cause for alarm. Not so much that we throw novices into positions of leadership but one in which we pray fervently for the Lord to work in, to raise up laborers into the harvest, as he tells us. I think that our church is specially situated here to to help with this problem as we've had a number of your sons who are very capable, very willing to answer the call into ministry. And I love this about our church, and I hope that we can see more of this in the days ahead. But new hope, I hope, that you are praying for the Lord to call more people into the gospel ministry, be it full-time pastoral roles or some other way. Some of you in here right now are battling over this issue and you feel the tug of God on your life. It's possible that you are working through exactly what all of these Levites were battling in themselves. I have such a good life here. I know what God wants me to do and I don't want to give this up. Do I give up my own autonomy and answer the call to preach wherever? We can pray and we can encourage the men in our church to assume these roles, but what does Ezra do in Ezra chapter 7 and 8? Well, he, he's a little, he goes on the offense a little bit more than what we would. The next few verses of chapter 8 point out that he actually sends out a delegation of men to one of these cities where Levites had kind of gathered to proclaim to them the need for the servants of God to come and serve in the temple. Look at Ezra chapter 8 verse 17. He tells this dispatched group, I gave them a command for Ido, the chief man at the place of Casaphia, and I told them that I told them what they should say to Ido and his brethren to the Nethanim at the place of Casaphia, that they should bring us servants for the house of our God. Then, by the good hand of our God upon us, they brought us a man of understanding of the sons of Mali, the sons of Levi, the sons of Israel, na- namely Sherebiah, with his sons and brothers. Eighteen men. Verse 19. And Hashabiah, and with him Jeshiah, the sons of Moriah, Merari, his brothers and their sons. Twenty men. Crisis averted. Two heads of Levite houses, Sherebiah and Hashabadiah, Hashabadiah, I knew I was going to mess that up, Hashabadiah, along with their sons, they join in the ranks. These answer the call to serve the Lord in this way. Now the caravan can pull out. 
We can head back to Jerusalem. I've lost some of you, I understand. I'm talking about Levites. Hang with me. As Ezra is cinching everything down and about to tell the whole wagon train, you know, head them up, move them out, let's go to Jerusalem, he looks, in around, he looks around and he realizes the precarious position that they find themselves in. I spoke about it earlier about how Artaxerxes had blessed them with everything they would need for the journey and the job of beautifying the temple. Scholars tell us that when you add up all the silver and gold that's listed in Ezra chapter 7 that they're traveling with, in modern terms, you're looking at over $5 million. And here's a caravan of 1,700 people, and they've got no security. They're about to embark on a 960-mile journey from Persia to Jerusalem across rough terrain with women and children in tow. And there are no armored vehicles. There are no bank transports in sight. Look at verse 22 to find out why they found themselves in this position. Ezra chapter 8, verse 21, excuse me. Ezra says, I proclaimed a fast there at the river of Ahava that we might humble ourselves before our God to seek from him the right way for us and our little ones and all our possessions. For I was ashamed at the request of the king and escort of soldiers and horsemen to help us against the enemy on the road because we had spoken to the king saying, the hand of our God is upon all those for good who seek him, but his power and his wrath are against all those who forsake him. So, we fasted and entreated our God for this safety, and he answered our prayer. You know how I told you earlier about how I wish we had some more detail about Ezra's interaction with King Artaxerxes and asking him to allow him to go back to Jerusalem with these Jews? Well, here Ezra kind of does paint the picture a little bit more. As part of his asking to go and worship Jehovah in Jerusalem, Ezra makes this claim. The hand of our God is upon all those for good who seek Him. Essentially, Artaxerxes, don't stand in our way. Don't keep us from worshiping the Lord. If you allow us to go up, God's good hand will be upon you. But if you don't, God's wrath will be upon you. And that's a strong statement to say to the one who has absolute sovereign control of your life there in the courts of Persia. And with a statement like that, how in the world could Ezra then ask for an armed guard? God's good hand is upon those who seek him. By the way, Artaxerxes, can you spare you know, some AKs and some M16s possibly? You know, make a sure. We want to get there safe. God's hands upon us, but it's always good to have some backup. I have seen some of y'all travel fewer miles with more of an armory and less money than Ezra's troop. <laughs> we camo and ammo up at the drop of a hat because we believe that God blesses the, re the prepared, right? Amen? I really thought I'd get a resounding amen off that, but... <laughs> I really lost y'all with all the Levite talk, I guess. I want you to hear me. 
I'm not saying that that's totally wrong or evil, but here, Ezra felt ashamed, hypocritical, to say, God will protect us. Can you send us some armed guards? This is not a tirade against firearms just on our faithlessness. Hear me on this point. We can debate all of this later. You may wrongly chalk all of this up to just Corey's unpopular opinion, and I'm very aware of how unpopular some of it is. But I'm trying to be true to the text here. I am very aware that you can pray while you're at the gun range, but God's people have throughout millennia chosen Ezra's course of action more often than our current dependence on deadly force. If Ezra's call for God's people to fast and pray instead of suiting up and armoring up and ammoing up bothers you or seems to be too spiritual or too unrealistic, you need to check what it means to have faith in God. Very often, we will say things like, God will protect me. And what we mean is, and I'm going to make sure he protects me too. That's not Ezra. He was ashamed because he had made such a strong statement. The hand of God is upon us for good. There's no way I could ask for physical security after that. If I'm doing what God really wants me to do, he will go before me. Jim Elliott once wrote, man is invincible until God is finished with him. I want you to hear the irony of that statement and who it is who wrote it. A martyr. Someone who was speared to death for the sake of the gospel. Ezra was so dependent upon God's hand to keep him that he forsook all other forms of security. He saw the hypocrisy of his heart. God's got this. I can't ask for anything else. He chose prayer and fasting for at least a week and a half over a king's guard because he felt that the testimony of God was worth suffering for if it came down to it. Let that sink in. In this particular situation, it was God's will that Ezra and the troop get to Jerusalem, but that doesn't mean that there was safety all the way. In fact, verse 31 seems to detail that, they're actually, that they actually were attacked and ambushed. But verse 31 tells us what happened in those accounts. We departed from the river of Ahava on the twelfth day of the first month to go to Jerusalem, and the hand of our God was upon us, and he delivered us from the hand of the enemy and from ambush along the road. He saved us out of those situations. The hand of God. It calls, the hand of God, it, it called Ezra to seek out the king's blessing to return to Jerusalem. It, it calls Artaxerxes as he's commissioning and blessing Ezra to go. The hand of God was upon the Levites as they answered the call to serve the Lord and his temple to give up their temporal possessions and do this great thing. I have one question for you in regards to the call. Do you believe that the hand of God is calling you today? You know what I mean. 
I want to keep it as general and generic as I can, allowing the Holy Spirit to move in you and through you during this time, that the hand of God will kind of pull you, call you. You have been thinking about doing something for the Lord for a long time. And yet you've just been staying in the backwaters, unwilling to do what God, you know God has called you to do. The hand of God calls, but the hand of God keeps. It kept Ezra as he petitioned the king to do the will of the Lord. It safely kept God's people all throughout the 960-mile journey to the temple to worship him. Do you have any question then that if God is calling you, he will not also keep you? Well, the only thing that remains then to ask is, how can I have the hand of God on my life. Every Christian ought to be asking that question. How can I have the hand of God on my life? Because inherent to the text, it seems as though God's hand is on this one and God's hand is not on that one. Ezra said it best. The hand of our God is upon all those for good who seek Him. Seek him. Isaiah rang this point home when he wrote in Isaiah 55, 6, seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. That is now. I don't want to presuppose on the purposes of God, but I firmly believe that if you are here today, if you're under the sound of my voice, that the time to seek God is now. Scripture is always imminent. It's never, oh, wait a little while. It's now is the day of salvation. While he may be found. We just read that in Isaiah 55, 6. While he is near. Do you know what that tells me? That denotes that there could be a time in which God will not be found by you. And that there may be a time in which he will not be near you. So why not now seek him now? I have to believe that in the providence of God and your willful act of getting up and coming to a church service on a weekend morning, that there is something in you right now, perhaps the very hand of God, which is tugging on you to seek him. You came because you'd satisfy mom, because the girlfriend dragged you here, but I'm telling you, the hand of God is pulling you closer to him. So seek him to have his good hand on your life. Paul stood in the, he stood in the middle of the Parthenon. He stood amongst Greeks who had made it the passion of their life to seek the gods. Literally, he uses their term. And he boldly proclaims in the book of Acts, God has made from us one blood every nation of men to dwell on the face of the earth, and he has determined their pre-appointed times and boundaries of their dwellings so that they should seek the Lord in the hope that they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. Do you hear me this morning that he is not far from you? I have counseled some of you over the last couple of months that you feel at a distance from God, and I'm telling you, the distance is never God's, it's ours. We keep him standoffish. He's calling us, seek me. My hand will be upon you. 
is not far from you. The King of creation who upholds all order in the universe is near to you. A couple of weeks ago, we talked about how God sees us. I, would, I told you I would, had battled all week with the text. I had struggled with it there in Ezra. Ezra 6. And I was walking out in the field over here on the church's property. And as I was just kind of working through with all of that, I had this overwhelming sense that God sees me. And it was like nothing else was around. As much as it ought to encourage us that God sees us, it ought to more so, our desire ought to more so have the hand of God upon us. Well, how do you truly seek God? What do you do? People have spent thousands of dollars on trips to Mecca. They have, they have gone to Rome. They've visited the Hagia Sophia. They've, they've walked up the steps. They've chanted. They've, they've spun the prayer wheels. They've done everything to much financial ruin. Seeking God. What does it look like for us to seek God? I've been reading Colin Smith's sermons on this text, and he pinpointed it so well. He wrote, The hand of God will be upon us when the word of God is in us. The hand of God will be on us when the word of God is in us. And open the word and seek him. You will find that he is not far. He longs to have a relationship with you. Allow him to have absolute sway in your life. I'm preaching uphill all morning. And I wish it were not so. The hand of God. Is it on your life? I'm not saying, is, is God blessing financially and all the good things happening? Uh, you know, I'm not talking about health, wealth, prosperity, nonsense, gospel. That's not gospel. Is the hand of God on you, calling you, keeping you? I suppose that the absence of the hand of God is more felt than the presence of the hand of God. It calls you to himself. It keeps you in his will. Father, I, I pray, Lord, take stumbling and stammering words, and I pray that the heart of the gospel is laid out. We could... The truth is, Lord, we could seek you all we wanted to, but if you didn't seek us out first, we would have never found you. And you're the one who left the 99 and you came for us.
Lord, I pray as we have looked at in this historical account of what it means to have the blessing of the hand of God on someone's life in history, Lord, I pray that there will, every single one of us in this room, we will leave with what it means for us to have the hand of God in our life right now. Lord, I pray that you will bless so that you could draw us even closer. And Lord, if there are times in which you turn the nozzle of blessing off, in order to get our attention so that we feel the absence of the hand of God in our life, Lord, I pray that it will cause us to run even quicker to you. Seek you. Thanks for listening to New Hope Church's podcast. If you would like to listen to more content from our church, follow us at newhopefwbc.com.